welcome to Spirit Tea with Nikki, the podcast where we talk about all things related to lifestyle and spirituality. I am your host, Nikki, certified energy healer and spiritual psychic medium. I started this podcast to share my experiences, to connect further with all of you, and to most importantly, have fun while doing it. This is a podcast where I share personal stories and insight from the spiritual and physical realms. So make yourself a tea, get cozy, and hang out with me. Welcome to episode two of Spirit Tea with Nikki. First, I wanted to say a big thank you to all of those that had sent me beautiful messages about my story. Everyone seemed to be very emotional and shocked, including myself. Okay, it was truly such a surreal experience for me to reflect back in the way that I did and to record it for everyone to hear. I had even received messages from people who didn't know me and that were touched by my story. It was crazy. It was honestly just overwhelming, but in the best ways. And just to witness the impact of sharing such a private and vulnerable part of my life was so beautiful. So again, thank you to those who held space to listen. My childhood was really hard and I blamed myself a lot. I blamed myself for my family falling apart. I blamed myself for how my life was. I blamed myself for my brother's addiction. I mean, I even blamed myself for my dad passing away. Something that I didn't get into too much was that my dad had actually needed a kidney transplant somewhere along the way. And being at the age that I was, I actually like remember taking the responsibility of that upon myself. No one was a good fit at that time. And I definitely wasn't a good fit because I was like seven when we first found out that he needed one. And My kidney was too small, but I remember being at that age and just wishing and praying to anything that was out there that he would find a suitable donor. And in the end, it was part of the reason, I guess, that he did end up passing away. And isn't that crazy? Like I, for the longest time, I actually took responsibility over that. It was such a traumatizing time of my life to being that young and feeling like I had to take the burden of everything else. I think it's also like part of my personality in the way that I care for people. But I just remember just feeling so devastated. And you know, like with my brother or my half-brother, He did his best with what he knew to do. Obviously, at the time, I didn't necessarily feel this way. But growing up and throughout the years, I can't imagine being in his position, you know, protecting me or so-called protecting me from the truth of my father's passing was what he thought was best. But that really taught me that our parents or our guardians or whoever takes care of us, like they really have no idea what they're doing. Honestly, like everyone just tries to do their best. And I know that my brother had the best intentions and probably just didn't know like how 
to have the conversation with me. I'm sure it was really difficult for him because he was in his own grief. And growing up in Asian culture, like we just don't talk about how we feel about things. So, I mean, as much as I was resentful for a long time, I also understand now that I'm a lot older. But seriously, like, no wonder I had trust issues. Like, you know, no wonder I had abandonment issues and severe control and anger issues. Like, it was such an unstable, long period of my life where I never knew anything, but I felt like I knew stuff. I couldn't really trust anyone. Like, as much as I loved my dad, Because my brother was the other person that I had grown up with, I absolutely adored him too. So to say the least with seeing him deteriorate and experience the grief that he did, it was also very heartbreaking for me. I remember taking responsibility because it was like, okay, well, there's just two of us now, you know, it's like we're brother and sister and I had to pick up after your slack, even though I'm much, much younger than you. Again, growing up feeling like I had to rush through it all. I felt like I could never catch a break. And imagine not being able to catch a break for years and years of your life. So a lot of my teenage years, I had a very, very addictive personality. And that's definitely what I had found in my own experiences. So dabbling in like drugs and alcohol at a young age was definitely my form of escaping from my reality. My life was so extreme and my emotions would literally follow suit. Everything was always like one end of the spectrum or the other. I was either like super happy about something or I was super upset about something or I was super angry. Like there was just never an in-between. And I remember like when I loved something, I just loved it so much. And I was, it was almost obsessive in some ways, just depending on what it was. But that didn't help when it came to substances. After I was, you know, taken away from my brother's custody, I just spent a lot of time with what I called friends back then. And, you know, partying and drinking and drugs and whatnot were definitely what we all knew to do. And at the same time, being on all those medications for my depression and all my disorders and all of that didn't really help. So it was a time where I definitely tried to find different ways to numb myself, to escape, like I said. And I would self-medicate a lot. So kind of like doing a little bit of this and a little bit of that and then throwing in a prescription in there. Like I wanted to do anything to just check out, even if it was for a little bit. So, you know, from the ages of 14 till about 16, 17, I had loved all the kind of hallucinatory drugs like MDMA, for example. Ecstasy was something that I liked for a while too. And I guess drinking in some ways, but that was mainly because it was just more accessible 
sometimes. But of course, it couldn't just be like something chill like weed, right? It had to be like, like a little harder than that. So I definitely had my highs and the highs and the lows of the lows. But I had always been drawn to anything that would bring my anxiety down. And that's when I was first introduced to Percocets. I touched on this a little bit in the last episode where I was given one pill. And I remember so distinctly that it was going to be okay because it just makes you feel relaxed. It's just a really so-called nice feeling and doctors give it to you. So it's all good. And I remember being like, all right, I mean, I've done so many other things, right? I've had all these medications that I, by that time, had come off of. So all those antidepressants and mood stabilizers, and I don't recommend cutting yourself cold turkey off of these medications if you are on them. But at the time, I, again, self-medicated and figured it out on my own that I was not biologically compromised. I was just emotional. So I figured, hey, why not? Like, you know, I've kind of been strung along through all types of different doctor prescribed things. What could this do? So from there, I remember loving it. It was definitely like this calm feeling. It was definitely not like an upper of any kind. It was it was a downer. And it worked really well for me. And it's not like I would do anything particular when I was on it. I just remember feeling like my mood was better. I was just more pleasant to be around. I felt happier about everything. And I remember specifically being told that they were non-addictive. So again, why not? It was after maybe six to eight months later where I was able to get more access to it. And Percocets at the time, and I say at the time because I have no idea what like they are now, but they were five milligrams per pill. And I remember my group of friends at the time, we would just casually pick them up and just go hang out and have great chats. Like I remember just having a lot of good conversations and the vibe feeling really nice. But the problem is I just never stopped. And something that we would just do here and there a couple times a week, or I mean, really just started as one time a week, it ended up becoming eventually and really quickly something that we did every day. Some of my friends at the time had realized pretty quickly that there was a problem and they were able to discontinue. And I was just in complete denial because, again, it made me feel so good. In my mind, I had no reason to stop. And it just continued. And eventually, Percocets were something that we could no longer get anymore, whatever the reason was. And I remember calling my dealer at the time. And 
I was just like, oh my gosh, you don't have any more? Like, what are we going to do? What am I going to do? And he was like, okay, I have these things and they're called Oxycontin. I'm like, what's that? And he just tells me it's like the same thing. The only difference is that it comes in a higher dose, which at the time was 20 milligrams. And he's like, but you just have to like cut it in half. And it's basically the same thing. And it has the same effects. And if anything, it's probably going to hit you faster. I'm like, okay. And he's like, oh, and it's cheaper. I'm like, oh, okay. So that was when I discovered Oxycontin. And by now, many of you have probably heard about Oxycontin and or have seen the new Netflix series called Painkiller or the original, actually, and it's called Dope Sick. It's only available on Disney+. Plus. So if you haven't seen it, definitely do. But that was when I started to replace Percocets with Oxycontin. And that went on for about a year. So from the time I, start, I discovered Percocets till my little Oxy kind of situation, it was about a year. And one day, my dealer ran out again. So he just wasn't able to get it. And I was like, okay, that's fine. I'll just like take a break. It's not a big deal. And I remember immediately something rushing over my body. And it was this terrible, unsettling feeling. It was like, it's hard to explain, but it was like having waves moving through my body, through my back, through my legs. And it's almost like you want to scratch an itch, but you, you can never actually reach it. I remember my anxiety and my, my mood just started getting really irritable. It was so crazy what I was feeling and I had no idea. Like I remember sweating a lot as well. And it was such a foreign feeling. And mind you, I understandably so, because I've just been numbing myself for the last year. And Oxycontin was exactly what my dealer had said it was for me. Was It was the same thing as Percocet. It definitely hit a lot faster. And again, like when I say the feeling is just like calming and warm and that kind of, and it made me more pleasant. Like that's just, that's really just what it was. But I was very high functioning with it. If anything, it made me feel normal. It made me feel like my best self. So this was not good with what I was experiencing. I remember my nose was running. I felt nauseous. It was just not a good time. And I remember specifically that night I had gone through it and it was not pleasant at all. And I remember waking up in the morning after sleeping like one hour, maybe max, texting my dealer right away and being like, hey, do you have any? And of course he did. So from that day forward, I found out what a withdrawal was and how it felt in my body. And I decided that I was never going to feel that ever again. And that is when the second, third, and fourth year of my addiction 
completely ripped through my life. I remember in that time, I continued to do what I was doing. Like, again, I wasn't doing anything particular when I was on them. It just made me feel normal. But instead of doing them just like one time in the night or in the day, by this time I was doing them when I woke up. And in a few hours, I was doing them in the afternoon. And then after that, I was doing them at nighttime. And I just didn't want to stop doing them because I was scared to withdraw. I was scared to have those feelings. And that was a whole different level of anxiety. I remember my doses kept going up. So I started off with 20 milligrams of Oxycontin. And by the second, third, fourth year, I was up to 160 milligrams of Oxycontin and I was not getting high anymore. I actually stopped getting high pretty quickly. I would say probably a year and a half to two years of my initial addiction, I was not getting high anymore. I was just doing them in order to not get sick. And eventually you hit a point where you need more for some reason because your body just starts to crave for it. And it's like your mind tells you like you better have some ready later because it's coming. It was such a crazy time of my life because everything revolved around my addiction. All the money that I made went to it. I remember just slaving away in any capacity, in any way that I could to get it and to pay for it because it was a very expensive addiction as well. It's definitely not a cheap addiction to have. And I remember the worst probably part was that it was also a secret. So like, because I was so high functioning on it. And it, again, it made me feel normal. I never wanted to tell anybody because I also didn't think anyone would understand. Like at that time, I don't think people were doing that. Well, no one I knew at the time, at least, was doing Oxycontin in the capacity that I was. And I had this like love for it. And it, in so many ways, like I would be able to like focus on it. I would be more motivated on it. It was just like this magic pill for me. But again, it just came with such low lows. And when I wasn't on it, I was a complete nightmare. I remember, especially when I didn't have it or thought that I wasn't able to get it, I would do everything in my power to move mountains and make, make sure that I would never get sick. Getting sick, you guys, like it is one of the worst things ever, like ever. I would rather have gone through my childhood probably again than ever having to go through a withdrawal ever again. And like I said, like a year and a half to two years of my initial addiction after that was really about just not getting sick. And I never stopped. After that, there was not one day that I went without because I could not. 
This was not something, it was non-negotiable. And I remember at one point in my mind, I was like, I don't want to live another day if I don't have this. Like, it's like I married it in some way, which is crazy. It ruined a lot of my relationships, but people just thought I was like emotionally unstable and just like crazy, which I don't blame them. And I remember acting in ways that were just so out of character. But the drugs really had taken over in every way possible. I literally felt like I had no reason at all to ever stop. And by the third to maybe three and a half year part of my addiction, I had discovered what it was like to mix Oxycontin with cocaine. And that is a substance that I never liked because my anxiety is bad enough. The last thing I need is a stimulant in any way. And it was just not my choice. It was not something that I was into. But at that time, I was with somebody that really liked that. And it was kind of like this bonding thing that we would do sometimes, which ended up being all the time for three months. So I was playing Russian roulette every night with my life by mixing those two substances. And like I said, opiates or Oxycontin, Percocets, they are classified as downers. And cocaine is an upper. So I was playing tug of war with my heart in the worst ways. And I had no idea. This was a time of my life where I experienced an overdose. When I was doing this and mixing the way that I was, I remember I would like to do kind of weird things. Like I would like to take baths. I would like to be alone, which is such a red flag. I liked to just hermit and be my own thoughts. And I remember one day I was in the bath and again, definitely hiding the whole opiates, Percocet, Oxycontin thing. And I stopped breathing. And this is something that's very common when you are on downers. And this is actually how people overdose, including things like heroin, is that it shuts off a part of your brain that basically tells your body to breathe. So people who have come back from overdose on opiates often will say that they feel like they just kind of fell asleep. It just feels very surreal. They come out of it very confused, very dreamlike state. And understandably so, because it literally is like that. It feels like you just kind of doze off. It feels like you just kind of drift off into this empty space that feels really nice. And then you stop breathing. There were many times prior to this bathtub incident that 
I would, what is called nodding off. And I remember like nodding off, which is essentially like closing your eyes and your head kind of starts to sway in one direction or another. And then me like gasping for air. And so it just happened at the wrong place, wrong time and with an added substance to it. And I had overdosed in the bathtub. By the grace of whatever higher power, my face never went into the water and I had awoken out of it. And I remember being so scared and so traumatized in so many ways, but it was definitely not enough for me to stop. So that carried on for, like I said, about three months with the mixing of this deadly cocktail. And eventually, you know, I just remember starting to hate oxys. I started to hate what my life had become. And this was probably at the end of like my three month bender situation. And I was just like doing only oxys again. I wasn't doing any coke or anything else. And there were so many moments where I was like, I just am so tired. Like I'm so tired of being sick and tired. I'm so tired of being scared of something that is inevitable, which was getting sick at the time. I'm so tired of keeping the secret. And it was just so exhausting. And I remember at that time, I was like running out of money. Any money that I made, I was already needing to like pay back because I was using more than I was making. And not only was I just not getting high anymore, but I was also getting to the point where my dosages weren't enough and I just needed more throughout the day to stop getting sick. It's crazy how high and fast your tolerance builds when it comes to Oxycontin. And one day I just remember being like, I need to get help. And I've never considered it in the past. There was just no way. Like I said, I was like, I'm going to marry this. Like, this is what I'm going to do for the rest of my life. If I don't have this, I will die. And that's completely fine with me. And I remember having literally like two Oxy-20s left in my hand. And just by divine intervention or something, it was like, just, just Google it. Just Google something to do with rehab. And I'm like, okay. So now looking back, it makes a lot of sense as to what had happened there. It was definitely some kind of higher power for sure. And I remember picking up the phone and calling the first place that came up. Now, I don't know if you guys have ever heard about that show called Intervention. So my rehab that I called was in that show. Okay, so... It was a private facility. And back then, I was so addicted 
But I was so fascinated by the human mind. And like, I was so fascinated with addiction. I had actually gone to post-secondary, even though I didn't graduate high school. But in the world that we live in nowadays, like, do you even need high school? But yeah, I went to post-secondary for social work and specializing in addiction and recovery. And I was loaded every class. But <laughs> but I remember like being so fascinated by it and learning so much on it. And like I said, when I was on the drugs, I was feeling quite good about myself and quite dialed in and very compassionate, all the great things. So finding this rehab and remembering it from a show that I've seen was was like, okay, I think this is probably a good fit. And I remember calling and someone picking up the phone. And basically, I explained to them in very short terms, which was, I have a really bad Oxycontin problem. I've been doing it for three, four years now. And I need help. And right away, I just remember the intake worker, which was actually the owner. And she was just so loving and caring. And she just told me like, I'm going to find room for you. But what I want you to do is pack your bags right now and bring the rest of the drugs if you have them. And I will call you back in an hour. And just something inside of me was like, let's just do that. So I did exactly that. And I thought it was quite fascinating that she was like, bring the drugs that you had. Because that was one of the questions. She was like, do you have any more on you? And I'm like, yes, I have two more. So anyways, this was in the morning. And probably by the mid-afternoon, I was on my way to an address in Maple Ridge. And I remember pulling up there. It's this beautiful house. Exactly what I saw in an intervention. <laughs> and not knowing what I was actually doing. I remember just feeling like such an out-of-body experience. And I remember the person I spoke to when she called me back. She's like, okay, so we have a bed for you. It's going to take you some time to get here. So what I want you to do, and this is if you want to do it on your own, you can take the rest of the drugs that you have and know that it will be the last time you do them. And I just remember that approach being so interesting to me. And I did exactly that. I remember I pulled up and as I was getting my bags out of the car, I quickly swallowed my last bits. And I walked straight up to the house. And as the door opened, there's this girl that had greeted me. I'm going to leave her name out. And this is kind of where I start to get a little emotional because I remember just feeling so hopeless. And I remember feeling so lost. And the whole day that day was like an out-of-body experience. And it was almost like something just led me there, you know? And I remember when she opened the door, I just felt this energy from her that everything was going to be okay. And 
I didn't know how or why, or maybe it was the drugs, but I just remember literally walking up the steps on the porch and she right away just came up to me and held me and I just fell into her arms and I immediately started crying and she was like, everything is going to be okay. You're going to recover. And from that moment, any kind of hope that I had, it was felt at that time. So I had met my roommate at the time. I had met the other women in the house. It was just like a women only thing. And it was a private rehab. And private rehabs are extremely costly. I was in the intake process. And I remember that they had like 30, 60 and 90 day programs. And due to the severity of my addiction, they were like, you probably need to be here for 90 days. So this was not something that I had anticipated. I definitely didn't want to be there after I got off of my high. (laughs) But it was just what it is. So that night, they had prepared me and let me know that in X amount of hours, I would probably start to feel uncomfortable, which basically means I was going to get sick. And so the plan was that... They were going to give me some medication to help ease the withdrawal symptoms. So I don't know if you guys are familiar, but when you have a really bad and ongoing opiate addiction, it's not necessarily ever recommended for you to stop cold turkey because it can be very harmful for you and you could literally die. So a lot of times people will try to taper off. Sometimes they will seek medical support and get treatments through like methadone and suboxone, which I had a little bit of a stint with that where I tried to do that and it just didn't work, which is again, why I ended up going to rehab. So they had certain medications that were classified as benzodiazepines, which were anxiety reducers, medications basically for anxiety. And there was something else too that they had on deck. And I can't remember what it was, but I just remember they were like, this is like tried and true, but we are the ones that are going to have to distribute it to you. So the girl that had greeted me in the beginning, she was someone that like, lived there and worked there. She had actually had the same addiction as me, but she had a longer and more severe case of it in some ways. So part of her being someone that worked there was part of her recovery too. And she wasn't even that much older than me. I think she was maybe one or two years older than me, but I just like had this instant bond with her. So she was in charge of basically taking me in, in terms of like watching over me because I was considered like, I guess, high risk because I was about to go into withdrawal. So lo and behold, that's exactly what happened. (laughs) By the middle of the night, I started to feel not so great. And I remember they had given me a little bit of the benzodiazepine in the morning So I could go and fill a prescription for what I needed to 
truly prepare for the withdrawal. And so doing that was so scary, but you're also in an environment now, well, you can leave at any time, but they're going to just do everything in their power for you to not leave. Because obviously, as an addict, you're going to want to leave and find what it is that you are addicted to. Because when you enter, they take everything from you. Like you don't have a phone. You have designated hours that you can talk to loved ones. It was a very strict program that they had because you are dealing with addicts. So, I mean, that house was, at the time, was predominantly alcoholics. But there was this little pocket, me included, of people who did other things. And particularly for me, oxys. So in a lot of ways, you're like powerless and you just go through the motions. And I remember at the time I had a roommate sharing a room with me and God bless her because she was more of an alcoholic. And I remember like the staff had to talk with her like, hey, so um, Nikki's going to go through her first basically 24 hour withdrawal. and." If anything happens, let us know, whatever that means. So I had no idea what to really expect. They don't really tell you because, I mean, at this point, you should probably know kind of what to expect. But again, I've never fully withdrawn before. And I remember waking up in the middle of the night with the worst restless leg syndrome. That's what it's called. That feeling with like, you feel like you have an itch somewhere in your body, but it travels all the way in the back of your spine, all the way down to your legs and back up again. And you can just never get, it honestly probably sounds not as bad as it actually feels. And what I can tell you for sure now is unless you've gone through it, you have no idea how tormenting that feeling is. And right away, my eyes shot open and that's what I was feeling. And I remember too that my body was flailing. They had given me a little bit of the medications that I had gotten prescribed before I went to bed to try and help these reactions. But through that, I remember my roommate waking up because I was like thrashing against the walls. I was like pulling on the sheets. I was pulling on the window frames. I was like convulsing. And it was so surreal because I remember feeling like an out-of-body experience where my body was just doing its thing and I was just in the corner like disassociated. Obviously, this was just going on in my head, but it was like my body was doing things that I didn't have control over. And my roommate had run downstairs to wake up the intake worker, the one that had initially welcomed me through the front door. And right away, 
I was like begging her. I'm like, I need clonazepam, which is one of the benzodiazepines that would help with anxiety. And I remember she was like, I can't give it to you. I'm like begging her at like four in the morning. I'm like, please, 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 please. Like, I need this. I can't do this. And I was like crying and I was so upset and I was so scared. Like, I can't even explain to you guys the depth of what I was experiencing at the time because you literally can't put it into words. I was so desperate for it to stop and she could just see it and hear it in my voice. And I remember that she was just like, okay, you can't tell anybody. And this was obviously very unprofessional and unethical or whatever, but I I wouldn't have said it if I didn't feel like I needed it. Anyway, so I remember she had given it to me and it didn't really do anything, to be honest. It just kind of like subsided a little bit, but she had actually held me all night. She was like the big spoon and we slept downstairs in the living room and she just held me. And I remember periodically, like every 15 minutes, my body would thrash. Again, beyond my control is just what's happening. And I remember she would just hold me tighter at that time. And I would feel like nauseous. I needed to go to the bathroom. And she just held me through the whole thing. I couldn't even walk. It was so hard for me to move around. And again, like I've never experienced the withdrawal to this point. So I can literally say that if she wasn't there for me, I there's no way I would have made it out of that. And I am still eternally grateful for her presence and her love. And I hope she listens to this at some point because she literally saved my life. And I remember like just her accepting me in all that was happening. And it was so ugly and it was so scary and it was so traumatizing and by the end of it you know soon enough it was eight in the morning nine in the morning and we woke up and she said to me you made it through your first day of withdrawal and I was just like in awe and I couldn't believe it And that definitely was the first breakthrough that I had. And it was definitely not going to just end there. However, I'm going to continue with my story of recovery in the next episode. So if you've made it this far, thank you so much for listening and being here. I am so excited to share the second half of my recovery with all of you. So make sure you tune in next week. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. And as always, thanks for hanging out with me. 